Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, focusing on our inner world has no social currency. I mean, no one is standing around waiting to congratulate us for stopping to feel how we feel and to consider what we want and to question why we choose to behave in certain ways. If anything, our doing this makes others uncomfortable. However, I've noticed that when I treat my inner world as sacred, every interaction that I have with the outside world becomes sacred too. How I treat myself is a reflection of how I treat the world and in turn, how the world treats me. That's an excerpt from Madeline Ryan's debut novel, A Room Called Earth. A young woman prepares for a night out, a Christmas party, mostly filled with people she doesn't know. She dons a red kimono, sips a pre-party martini, and contemplates life, the world, and her analytical take on it all. Encounters will lead to recollections of other encounters, thoughts about the universe, and the truth behind the social masks we all wear. Madeline Ryan's A Room Called Earth draws you into the interior life of a strong, fascinating woman and a critique on the life we share but sometimes don't really see. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Madeline Ryan joins me now to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Madeline, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me, Mel. I'm excited to be here. Now, I've just owned that I, I really love this book. It's such a – this character is a really incredibly engaging character, and I can honestly say I don't think uh, since reading uh, Atessa Moshfeg's uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation have I been so engaged with the character, but for different reasons. This is not a misanthropic uh, character that's taking loads and loads of drugs. Quite the opposite is, is someone who's, you know, trying to really reach out to people. There are passing comparisons between the two books, uh, but I was very engaged by this uh, this rolling stream of consciousness. I want to talk about where this, this whole uh, setup evolved from. Yeah, so we, she kind of started talking to me, basically. It was sort of an experience of I created a lot of space in my life through all different kinds of choices and all these different life changes happened and then she sort of emerged from that space and I followed where she wanted to go and sometimes she would kind of delve into my own experiences and extract whatever she wanted to, to kind of illuminate her various points about communication, about the body, about, you know, her experience on the earth and what it's like to be alive at this time in society at this time and communicating with one another and trying to connect. So I kind of just went on the ride as I'm, you know, hoping readers will go because it is quite an adventure being inside the mind of her because she's quite a dynamic, multidimensional <laughs> she creature. Is. 
She very much is. I mean, this book, I should say, is set all on one night, but really the pace is slowed so that you do get a feeling of being in that time. It's really, it's really quite extraordinary how you've, how you've populated it without feeling like it's dragging. Really, the, the act of getting ready is, is forcing a contemplation of the world, of relationship with pets, of relationship with people. This is definitely a character who is awkwardly self-conscious uh, when it comes to social interactions, but sharply self-aware as well and very very aware of others uh of the things that others are ignoring or missing and uh, she does tend to say that at times although at others she sort of pulls back from it it's a really interesting analysis of you know what it is that we hide from the world and what it is that we show at the same time as really exposing this character's own vulnerabilities. To what extent do you see this character as a real uh, truth teller and to what extent is she a faulty narrator? Or is there a a huge kind of dollop of both? Yeah, I would definitely say there's a huge dollop of both because, you know, how reliable are any of us? We only have our perspective of a given situation, which in a sense is completely reliable because it's our perspective, but then it's also limited because it's just our perspective. So she's very much exemplifying that tension between subjective truth and a kind of objective truth. But she, as a person or as a character, I guess, is treating everything as sacred. Like, no matter what comes into her awareness, whether she's in her own space, where she's kind of got a lot of control and can feel safe and nurture herself and the things in her environment in this very intimate way to being in an out-of-control social environment where all different people and stimulus are kind of coming at her and it can be awkward, as you mentioned, and, like, difficult and confronting and is she going to say the right thing or the wrong thing? But every single aspect of her experiences, whether they're just with herself or with others, she treats as sacred you know, no matter how ugly or beautiful the things seem on the surface or no matter how angry or frustrated she might become, she's always seeking to turn her experience on this earth into something magical that's worthy of celebration. And I think that that, for me, was what made writing her so exciting and really helped me kind of embrace all the different facets of my own experience too. Yeah, I introduced uh, this segment with a with a quote from your book uh, and, you know, in it she talks about the importance of an interior life despite the fact that, you know, and the fact that it adds dimension to everything she does uh, and this idea of the sacred. And she does go on to say that um, she, she makes sure to adapt to social situations but that actually when she acknowledges the choice to adapt, she acknowledges that she's choosing it. I think it's such an interesting take because this character comes across as perhaps non-neurotypical. There is a lot of literature about people who think differently perhaps to to mainstream um, thinking and who try to mask that. And I think one of the wonderful things about this character is she knows when she is choosing to be inauthentic uh, to herself um, and she's choosing to do it for particular reasons. But when she chooses not to do it, she's also choosing, you know, to take herself back. And I think that this is a really wonderful strong character on that level Uh, you have sort of talked a little bit about that but I want to talk about how you constructed her in this way what techniques did you go into 
to allow this kind of stream of consciousness to come? And to what extent were you sort of channeling this this character that first came to you? So I took it kind of moment by moment. It was about being present with her in every experience that she had and then seeing where she wanted to go from that place. But it was very much about being still with each moment no matter where she was, whether she's in, you know, her home kind of caring for herself on her way out or whether she's at the party being like, okay, so this interaction with her ex-boyfriend has just happened. What is she thinking? What is she feeling? What does she want to do? What can she see? What can she sense? And it was literally going step by step and assessing those things and then seeing where they and where she would take me next because she'd be feeling guilty or angsty or whatever and then that would make her move her body in this way and then she'd want to go for a walk but then she's run into this person that she doesn't really want to get caught up in a conversation with but here she is being talked at and having that experience and then having to process and come to terms with that and then how does she feel what does she think what does she want to do and it was going moment by moment in that way. And it became so sort of psychedelic doing that. It's amazing how, you know, it mirrors our own experience every day. At the same time, we're constantly in this state of assessing how we feel, what we want, what we're thinking, what are we going to do next, what do we project into our future, how does our past relate to this present moment. Like when you think about life, it's quite psychedelic. And so that is what gave birth to this, as you mentioned, sort of neurodiverse world, but I think the world that ultimately we're all existing in and grappling with every moment. It's interesting so. because the character does at one stage observe that she doesn't need to take hallucinogens because she's like she feels as though she's already living that all the time, that she's living in this very acute state of living, um, which I thought was just kind of delightful. I mean, there, there are many kind of paradoxes. She's like, I don't need drugs to be myself, but then, you know, drinks a martini of an evening <laughs> that's very, very strong. Um, she's highly analytical to the point of, of being, you know, scientific about it in her mind, but then also will say things that are, you know, like borderline sort of like la-la out there sort of, um, you know, star signs and, um, you know, maybe rejection of, of modern medicine and things like that, you know, that are maybe allowing her to sort of have this scope of magic realism as or magical thinking, I should really say, um, as well as, you know, really engaging with this sharp, sharp-eyed view of the world. It's, it's what makes her so utterly human. Um, did you kind of litter the text with these sorts of... Um, deliberate things or did you just uh, and, and to what, what extent when someone says the voice just came to me are you are you allowing that to happen and curating it because I, I need to push back on that because I, I love the idea of it but usually quite a lot of work has gone into something before suddenly a, a character appears that's true and I mean I guess it was about making the choice of once I heard the voice to commit to giving it time and space. Like that's when a more conscious, grounded, reasonable, practical element had to kind of come in because it was like, okay, I like the sound of what I'm hearing in my mind. It was literally the first sentence that's the book, you know. I decided to wear a kimono and high heels to the party because I wanted people to see me in a kimono and high heels at the party. And I was like, whoa, 
pretty cool. Like, what's that? And I'm sort of in this weird situation in my childhood bedroom. I because I don't live in the city, but I went in to visit my parents and my mum had a book group going in the next room and I was in my old bedroom and I was looking at all the old stuffed toys, which, yes, are still there, and I just heard it. But then it was like, okay, well, is that just a passing, you know, ingredient or flavour or interesting perspective or is it something that I actually want to spend time with? And so it was about dedicating myself to that and seeing where it took me. And that required discipline and a kind of practicality to make space for it in my life and in my writing because I was writing articles and all sorts of things at that time. So then it was like, okay, each day or regularly visiting her and seeing what else she had to say and where else she wanted to take me. And inevitably, yeah, it was a very exotic dance between this cosmic awareness and connection and a more grounded, practical, almost scientific quality to her. And I think, in a sense, that is very much a reflection of what human beings are, like this dance between the known and the unknown and what's mysterious about the fact of our existing and then what we can plainly see and kind of break down and pick, pick apart. And so, yeah, I was incredibly nourished by continuing to dedicate myself to the voice. And it was a beautiful dance between, yeah, those mysterious elements of my own existence and the known elements, but also hers and who she sort of became. Mm, She's a wonderful vehicle as well for describing other characters because she is really giving you such precise detail, but she's, she's kind of describing things in a way that is breaking it into its component parts. It's like watching someone um, draw a life drawing. She's really compiling people in that way, Uh, but also the rendering of the dialogue from other characters. There's one particular character who's just a wall of words and, um, you know, (laughs) contradictions and you sort of, get um you know the central character's slight not quite judgment of this character but definitely their feeling of being slightly assaulted by this wall of words but at the same time still managing to to cope with it all um can you talk about how you kind of managed to create these other characters through the the locus of the of the central narrator yeah well I was very interested in her perception of them. And then in the back of my awareness, I always had this kind of loyalty to them or this awareness that they are going to be multi, much more, much, much more multidimensional than she can access. Because that's the truth of when we encounter people. And, I mean, the, the wall of words that you're referring to is a very dynamic person, I think. But in this particular relationship with the protagonist it kind of brings out probably the worst in her, in a sense, or this desire to kind of pour her experience all over the protagonist and share everything. And perhaps that's because she can sense the protagonist is to some degree like a scientist and has a relatively non-judgmental, although highly analytical, way of holding space for things. So she just shares all this stuff with her and I mean I've certainly been in situations where people will do that with me but I'm aware that they're also a multi-dimensional person who will be very different in another circumstance than someone else you know everything is so unique every interaction is so unique but this one at this moment at this party on this night was expressed in this way 
She is and then also, it, yeah. She is also giving people enough rope, really. <laughs> That's her style, <laughs> you know, her non sequiturs, her, um, you know, the fact that she's not just responding in the way that they expect as well means that they will basically expose things about themselves that perhaps they wouldn't in another interaction. And it's allowing the, uh, you know, the, the narrator's voice is allowing the audience somewhat to to also take something away from that, which which is where we start to feel co-opted into this. We're like, what what would, you know, what would be exposed about us in this circumstance? How much are we hiding behind those axioms or those kind of, you know, politenesses that we all share, I think is something I constantly was laughing at throughout this whole book. Totally. And I mean, it is pretty hilarious. So there are these kind of courteous social expectations that we have with both acquaintances and even people that we've known for a really long time it's fascinating how they can become hugely stifling and people like this protagonist exist to kind of break those down and allow for greater intimacy through breaking them down but at the same time those things do have a place and they allow for a kind of I don't know, establishing a common ground before presumably you get to intimacy somehow, but often that doesn't happen. So, yeah, she's very cataclysmic in that way because she wants to be honest and direct and to hold space and to observe and to listen, and then that brings out all kinds of things from the people around her and also in her own awareness about them. So, yeah, I'm very interested in the tension between those social expectations and conventions and, you know, politeness and courtesy and then where the rawness and the out-of-control nature of our actual experience and what we want to express in any given moment with any given person comes out and where those things meet. I mean, yeah, it's very exciting. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Madeline, I want to uh, come back to the very start of the novel, uh, this voice that you heard that set the whole story off. I decided to wear a kimono and high heels to the party because I wanted people to see me in a kimono and high heels at the party. Uh, very quickly, though, um, once she's at the party, she's approached by by someone who says um, how amazing the kimono is and then says, where did you get it? I don't really want to answer that if that's okay. Oh, okay, why not? Because I'm not my kimono. And I just thought this was another wonderful kind of um, paradox with this character that she pretty much much is introduced to ourselves as someone who is wearing this outfit because she wants to be seen wearing this outfit. But then once she's questioned about where it's from, she bristles or seems to bristle, um, but actually there's so much more behind it. Once you get towards the end of the novel, you really realise what's behind it. And and actually that this character, as much as she's talking about feeling what you feel and, and honesty and perhaps even emotional honesty is maybe really withholding the most important element of what has been happening to her and why she is reacting to the world the way she is. I don't want to give too much away about that, but can you talk about how you've wound that little kind of clues about that into the text, about a bigger thing, let's just say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's an interesting sort of tension and dance between, I think, being 
objectified and then also being an object. When it comes to clothing and the body and how we express ourselves, it's like you can weave this incredible fantasy around what a garment, say, like this kimono that she chooses to wear is going to give her and the feelings that it's going to give her and the sense of expression and kind of liberation. And she's very connected with that and that's very real for her. But then when confronted with this idea of, well, where did you get it? It's like, well, you're not going to find that experience of liberation and who I am, where I got it, you know, like what? And it becomes this incredibly yeah, awkward, tense exchange because she kind of wants that experience she has with the kimono and the idea of kimono to be the same as the experience that she would have in a social interaction about the kimono and where to, like, get one. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen. Those things aren't congruent. And I think that there's an incredible tension that we all navigate every day with that in in that realm that we've spoken already a lot about, which I find endlessly fascinating about how we express ourselves and then the limitations of that in our, like, earthly bodily reality. And, yeah, she's been through a lot. And what she wears and how she chooses to present herself in the world and interact with others very much is born out of how she's managed trauma and all kinds of stuff in her own life that she desperately wants to transcend, you know. And it's the same relationship that she has to difficult feelings that kind of mirrors that. It's like, well, this difficult thing will arise. How can I make it beautiful or expand beyond it into like this limitless life force and then yeah she's confronted with the question like well where'd you buy what you bought and she becomes yeah like rattled by it because it's like well I'm not a whole stream of receipts like you could sort of you know slim my life down to this just a pile of receipts basically if you wanted to but you're not going to find me there like I want to express the experience with you that I wanted to be expressing, but obviously we can't control how others perceive mm. us. And that's another thing that she explores through that night as well. And, and yet she does place real importance on objects and particularly that kimono, you sort of get a sense of why it is an important object in a way. And, you know, perhaps that's this idea you can, uh, she feels it is infused with it and, and another meaning that you can't just purchase or you can't just take. And I think it's a really interesting dynamic that she sets up where she does come up with these truths where you're going, yeah, girl, that's totally right. But then you're like, hang on, there is also something else going on. Uh, And I do wonder to what extent have you layered that in? Have you gone back and gone, actually, this is also a clue in the text? Because this is, there's something that is always driving the reader forward in this text. And I'm trying to nail how you've you've managed to construct it because you are using um, different t- types of drivers to move what is otherwise, you know, this real like meditation on the minutia of um, of someone's experience, um, but roving into these incredible um, places at the same time as pushing a kind of narrative forward. So, how much plotting did you do? I guess is what I'm really trying to ask. Well. I found that I could sense quite early on where it was going to end up, but how how she took me there or how we got there was a mystery and a moment-by-moment thing. I could sort of sense where it was going to end quite quickly in, in the writing of the start of it. Um, 
so I kind of then just allowed how that came about to emerge as it would. But in terms of plotting, that was probably the extent of it. And I was constantly having to go back and check in with things that had been that she'd established early on, like wearing the kimono. And it's like, okay, well, yes, now she's having this interaction with this person about it, where she's getting you know, unnerved by how she's being questioned about it. And then I kind of became conscious that we are contradictory beings. Like, the idea that we have of ourselves and versus the idea that someone else might have of us or the idea that we have of how we want an experience to go versus how the experience actually goes, whether it's going to a party or having a particular conversation or something bigger like the dreams and aspirations that we have for our life and then how that actually pans out. It's like we're constantly in this state of contradiction. And so I was constantly trying to weigh that up against her experience in, in her inner world and what she's anticipating, dreaming of, hoping for, desperate to express and then the reality of her lived experience and where those things meet and it was like if it ticked all the boxes of like that that kind of yeah dance between that without being too heavy in either direction uh, it's sort of hard to articulate but yeah that I was I was constantly weighing that up mm-hmm. and often there was just the right amount of yeah, tension between those things. And I think that the one of the, the things that really works with this character is that um, that also there are, you know, she as we've we've kind of alluded to, she's experienced some really extreme things in her life. And when she does offer those revelations, it's in this very deadpan way that isn't really analysed. <laughs> so she's analysing yeah. the, the merest kind of, um, you know, uh, the, the merest sort of movement or, or um, expression or things someone says um, in the most incredible detail and with this amazing insight. And yet these extremely big things that often are the preoccupations of entire novels really are, are touched on and left hanging there for the you know, for the reader to kind of sit in sort of slightly stunned silence to think about what that means, given everything we know about her, I found it incredibly affecting that, that you know, she didn't really go into this. It felt true to the character, mm. but it also made it all the more affecting, I think, in some ways. And was this an intentional decision to go in that direction? I became conscious that she didn't want to be defined by those things. You know, she kind of wanted to be defined by what she was interested in or what she would choose to analyse or observe or become obsessed with in any given moment or what gave her joy or a sense of connection with, like, the universe was far more seductive to her consciousness than dwelling on things that have victimised her or caused her grief or pain, you know, and whether you could argue that that's, you know, um, kind of neglectful or whether that's actually empowered is very interesting to me too you know it's like she doesn't want to be defined by these painful things but they're intrinsically a part of her it's like over the course of her life I would like to think that she can reconcile Mm. those different aspects but at the same time she does treat them as sacred and as beautiful and they're part of her experience but she doesn't she refuses to kind of dwell in the pain of those spaces too much, although she then has these huge contemplations about things that, like death, 
or like, yeah. you know, negative sexual experiences that she's had. Like she does reflect on them, but they're never quite connected with those moments where she's called to say, oh, yeah, this happened to me. Anyway. There is a real sense that she's holding herself back as well. So there is a compartmentalisation going on with this character. And it is part of the charm of the character that she's giving you this quite analytical look at the world at the same time as really showing these vulnerabilities. Uh, It gives it a kind of black humour throughout. And I have to say the litany of truly awful (laughs) ex-partners that she talks about are... You know, both horrendous but also really funny, like just in their awfulness. They're all horrible, horrible people. I just I know. Horrible. I know. It's funny for someone who's so analytical and observant and kind of intuitive and sensitive in so many ways. It's like how does that person end up in these situations? But it's almost because she has, she can then have this rich perspective and which is why when she actually connects with someone in the book in a more intimate way it feels so miraculous because I think it is miraculous when we manage to connect given everything we've been talking about today actually all the different tensions and contradictions and the psychedelic nature of our individual experience it's like how do we actually manage to connect with another human being in a positive, sensitive and respectful way. Like, it's so beautiful, you know, and then can we grow together? Like, what? Wow. And so it's like I feel like the novel, just as much as it's a celebration of her kind of hugely dynamic, contradictory interior, it's also a celebration of, well, what happens when you actually connect with another person and a are forced to expand even more and yeah there is a beautiful moment of that in the novel obviously as you have just alluded um where she does talk about that that feeling that you get of suddenly having a need fulfilled that you didn't even realize you had which I thought was beautifully beautifully expressed Uh, but she also at a certain stage talks about the pitfalls of being a um a you know, a woman attracted to cis men and basically, (laughs) you know, that that's kind of like being held, you know, held hostage or having Stockholm Syndrome or something else along those lines of like, you know, basically bemoaning that that situation and wishing it be otherwise um, Mm. was a really interesting take on things. So she's ever wry in her observations. One thing I do really, really need to talk to you about is the dialogue. It is utterly hilarious and beautifully (laughs) rendered. There's one um, quite late in the the book. um, She's going for a walk uh, and I'll just read you a little excerpt. I'm going to take Lovely. my shoes off. I'm going to take my shoes off. I was wondering oh, how you'd go in those. Not so good. Yeah. Can you see a bin anywhere? I'll keep an eye out. Thanks. There's a possum. It looks like a baby. I'll never get over seeing those. The bats are pretty freaky, though. Melbourne is Transylvania. Yeah. It's so quiet. I couldn't get over this. This sort of like quite staccato, almost series of non sequiturs. They do fit together, but it's just so perfectly done where it's like, you know, it's it really captures without saying it the awkwardness of her first meeting, um, you know, her own kind of unusual approaches to communication are captured perfectly. But, but I think this is sort of, uh, you know, it's a dialogue that at once sort of, you know, really expresses who she is as a person, but also really immediately shows that awkwardness of of wandering around at night with someone you've really only just met. So uh, I want to talk about how you did the dialogue. Did you write longer scenes 
uh, and then pair it back? Or how did you how did you achieve this kind of sparse yet incredibly effective uh, dialogue style? I guess it was the same approach as what we were kind of talking about earlier to do with being present in each each moment and seeing what was being felt, what was... But then I had to, you know, consider that for the other individual involved in the communication as well. I mean, in many senses, every sequence of dialogue takes the expression, you know, taking things at face value very literally because it's just what is said. And then the reader is kind of given space on the page to imagine the physical expressions or the intention behind everything that's being said and I find it really interesting to give readers that space and to be given that space myself because also even when I have sort of reread sections I'm like wow that could be interpreted so many different ways like it's so sort of multifaceted which is exactly what it's like being in a conversation like you're kind of not spoon-fed the person's intention necessarily when they say a certain thing to you so it was very much an exploration of that as much as it was okay in this moment what is she most likely to say what is she feeling what is she thinking what does she want and now what can I imagine the other person is going through and what do they want and what do they Mm. want to express? And so it was just, yeah, again, that kind of moment-by-moment assessment of that. Yeah, you've mostly set out the dialogue as well with its own kind of, you know, it's line-by-line, it's very... you know, simply laid out, often without any attribution. The only time you depart from that is when you have these very verbose encounters like the wall of words we mentioned earlier. And the style and formatting decisions that you've made really do make a difference to how we absorb those interactions as well. You've left a lot of, you know, space between the lines in the dialogue as well. Um, That does give you that sort of energy of people who are together but have a space between them. Uh, I think it's really, they're really interesting choices that you've made in terms of how you've set it out. Uh, Was that, you know, a part of the process of the editing or was that an original choice? Yeah, that was an original choice. Right from the start, it felt like the most natural way to go. And, like, any time I would try to mess with that, it it just never felt right. It felt like too much or not enough or whatever. It sort of just felt perfect to give that space around it. I mean, initially the book didn't have chapters. It was essentially just one, like, block within all of those sort of sequences of dialogue in there as well. But as I sort of continued, I guess you'd say, the editing process, having it broken up into chapters kind of that contained each thought or musing or interaction just allowed for even more breathing space. And I think breathing space in this book is very important given you are just in this one person's mind for the entire time, even if these interactions come in and out of it. You are with her, so to have breathers is important, or I felt it was, for the reading experience to become more spacious, for sure. Before we go, and uh, we are nearly out of time, I feel I would be remiss in not mentioning uh, our cover model and uh, one of the characters in the book, Porkchop, um, the relationship <laughs> with animals um, and how it's sometimes easier for the central character have, to have a relationship with an animal than with people, something I was reading while my small dog was sleeping on my feet um, was, was really quite delightful um, and I do think that the choice of having uh, a cat on the cover was an interesting one. Cats do figure large in this book. Um, can you just maybe talk a tiny bit about uh, why that decision was made to have the, the cat on the cover? Yeah, well, Porkchop is 
a great reflection of that sense of the all-seeing eye or the, the, the creature or the energy that wants to observe but be self-contained in the world. And, yes, she has a very sacred, intimate relationship with Porkchop in the book. He's very grounding and he observes her just as she's observing the world and her own sort of experiences in the world. And so they make a great, a great pair an amazing love story, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's so delightful. Well, Madeline Ryan, I could really talk to you all day about this book, and I very much appreciate you uh, staying with us for this show. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks so much for having me, Mel. It's been delightful. That was Madeline Ryan, who is uh, the author of A Room Called Earth, a stunning debut novel that's out now through Scribe. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Twitter.